0: How's everyone doing? Excellent. How many lawyers are in the house?
1: Wow. So we're not
0: CLE approved, but we could be. You
2: can build this time
0: Any law students? Okay. Any litigants? Ballot Dore, Ballot Dore, Ballot Dore. Courts in session. Let's talk about a lawyer's holiday special. I'll ask each panelist to
3: introduce themselves, starting with to my
0: left
3: is Kathy Steinman. Hi, everyone. I'm Kathy Steinman. I'm a deputy city attorney for the city of San Diego. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Good. Hi, my name is Stacey Beckerman. I'm a U.S. Magistrate Judge from Portland, Oregon.
5: I'm John Owens. I'm on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals with Chambers
2: right here in San Diego. Yeah. And keeping the mostly local flavor, <laughs> I'm, I'm Mitch Dembin. I'm a U.S. Magistrate Judge here in San Diego.
0: Thank you, you the become lawyers and judges. <laughs> so our agenda is jam-packed, and we have lots of fun little lessons we're going to hammer through,
1: like elves working in a workshop. So hippopotamus for Christmas.
3: So for those of you who don't know, this classic Christmas song, in it, a ten-year-old Gala P. sings to the world her wish to get a hippopotamus for Christmas. So uh, the lyrics, if you, the, for those of you who don't know it, she wants hippopotamus, and that's the only thing that she wants. So can she get a hippopotamus for Christmas? Well, under the Endangered Species Act, <laughs> I'm going to focus on two of these. Either, uh, but so I'm assuming she either wants to, under B, take any such species within the United States or the territorial sea of the United of the United States, or under D, possess, sell, deliver, carry, transport, or ship any such species. So, um, under the uh, Endangered Species Act, take means to harass, harm, pursue, hunt, shoot, wound, kill, trap, capture, or collect, or to attempt to engage in any such act. So if you have ever yelled at the monkeys at the zoo, you may have violated the Endangered Species Act. (laughs) So in this song, Gala wants to possess a hippopotamus. So now let's look at what's under, oh, what animals are protected under the Endangered Species Act. So under the Endangered Species Act, um, you have to meet five different criteria to be categorized as either endangered or a threatened species. And so you have to have um, a present or threatened destru- destruction, modification, or containment of the, ant- or the species habitat or range, overutilization for commercial, recreational, scientific, or educational purposes, a decline in their uh, numbers due to disease or predation, the inadequacy of existing regulations, and some other or natural or man-made factors that affect its continued existence. So are hippopotamuses protected under the Endangered Species Act? So we have two different types of hippopotamuses. I would say hippopotami. I'm actually not sure. Um, um, we have a common hippopotamus, which is the one everyone kind of thinks of. Um, they have been categorized as vulnerable since 2008, but I would argue that that actually does fall under the threatened, but for the purposes of the Endangered Species Act, they don't. Um, they are not protected um, as a threatened species. But I would argue they are because their numbers are declining. There are only about 115,000 to 130,000 left in the wild, um, and uh, their uh, habitat is... Um, uh, shrinking, and they're also being poached for their um, canine ivory teeth. Um, the pygmy hippopotamus, which are the smaller, cuter ones, um, they are on the endangered species list. They've been on there since t- 2010, um, and there are only about 2,000 to 2,500 left in the wild. Um, so under the Endangered Species Act, she could own a common hippopotamus but not a pygmy. <laughs> but there's another twist. What about state law? So since we're in California, we're gonna look at state law. So under the California Code of Regulations, it uh, says that it shall be unlawful to import, transport, or possess restricted live animals except, except under permit issued by the Department of Fish and Game. Hippos are included, and that's both common and e hippos. they are included on the list of restricted animals. So can she get a permit to own a hippopotamus? Well, under the Code of Regulations, it says that she must be at least, you know, someone to get a permit has to be at least 18 years old, have two years of hands-on experience for restricted species at similar facilities, and at least one year must be caring for the same or similar species. So what do we know from the song? Well, she's obviously asking for a hippopotamus for Christmas, presumably from Santa or her parents. I don't think she's 18 years old if she's asking Santa for something. Because um, we know we know Santa only delivers gifts to children. Um, and also, there's nothing in the song that indicates that she has two years of experience <laughs> managing managing, um, caring for these species. In fact, the, uh, one of the lyrics, she says that she saw one at the zoo once. So I don't think she meets the qualifications to get a permit. So no, she can't get a hippopotamus for Christmas.
5: Yeah, I uh, had not watched Frosty the Snowman in many, many years, and I watched it yesterday, and I'll just say animation has come a long way <laughs> uh, in the last 50 years. So uh, if you want to file suit in federal court, you have to demonstrate something called standing. You actually have to show an injury of some type. And this might seem like kind of a rote list of factors, but I will tell you, in the environmental field, there have been huge battles over this doctrine for the last 30 years. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with Frosty Asnomad, this is actually pretty traumatic scene where (laughs) Santa comes in the greenhouse and they see, Karen, obviously Karen meant a little different thing back then. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and that's that's Frosty right there. So that's kind of a kind of a sad thing. But you do have to establish an injury. In fact, the injury has to be traceable to a particular defendant, and the relief you're seeking must 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 actually redress or cure your injury. All right. So the first question is, well, what is Frosty? Right. He is. A snowman, right? He, he says in the movie, he says he can count. He says he can sweep. I think he could actually file a lawsuit under Article 3 of our Constitution because we actually have in my court. Now, look, a lot of courts probably say we're crazy, but in our court, the Ninth Circuit, there actually was a case that said whales have Article 3 standing to sue. And there was a more recent one. Naruto, that was the case you might have read about, about the monkey who found the camera in the jungle and took pictures of himself. Uh, and then PETA tried to file a lawsuit saying that it was copyright infringement for the guy who took the camera to publish the monkey's pictures. <laughs> and so in that case, the Ninth Circuit said that the monkey had Article Three standing. Now the monkey did not have what's called statutory standing. I mean, Congress actually, actually passed a law But in terms of, as far as the constitution is concerned, yes, the monkey could file a lawsuit. So it seems to me if the monkey can file a lawsuit, then I think Frosty could as well, at least in terms of article three.
2: You know, in our court, we see a lot of cases that we think are filed by monkeys. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh,
5: And sometimes we say that guy who filed it has snow for brains, or maybe something a little different. Uh, so, first question, I think he can actually file a suit. But then the second question is, what is he going to sue for exactly, right? So this is where it gets trickier. Okay, Frosty's smiling here. I'm not sure if Frosty should be smiling because I think Frosty's going to have a tough time. So there was a case, you might have read about it, where a number of children sued the United States government, saying the United States government's policies are making global warming worse. We're suing to stop you. And the Ninth Circuit in that case said that there really wasn't a statutory vehicle to challenge what the US government is doing. However, that case actually apparently is still in settlement discussions. Not sure exactly where that case is, honestly. And I think Frosty has a better case than the kids do because I think if Frosty can tie it to a particular polluter, maybe have a better shot. And if you look at that puddle, I think Frosty's got a little bit of a better case right to begin with because he's literally getting melted. Um, so I actually think it's not impossible that Frosty could actually bring this lawsuit. So the Christmas snow will fall, Frosty will reappear and the lawsuits will follow. So there you go. Judge Beckerman,
0: let's talk about a Christmas story.
4: A Christmas story highlights uh, many important legal issues. I'll focus on three. Let's first talk about the tongue uh, incident. (laughs) Ralphie's friend Flick, after being triple-dog dared by a kid named Schwartz, affixes his tongue to a school flagpole and there it becomes stuck. If you are Flick's parents and you have both medical bills and dealing with a kid with emotional distress, can you school the Sioux for their negligence in allowing Flick to affix his tongue to the flagpole? There are two theories of negligence you might pursue. One is called premises liability. Turns out a school is responsible for maintaining school grounds so that accidents and injuries don't occur during the school day. But the harm has to be foreseeable to the school. So if there's an icy sidewalk, it's foreseeable that a kid might slip on the icy sidewalk. The flagpole, maybe it's not foreseeable that a kid would affix his tongue to a school (laughs) flagpole. So they're probably off the hook on-premises liability. But then there's also negligent supervision. A school does have a duty to supervise students during uh, lunch and recess on the theory that unattended children in groups um, uh, may get into some trouble. So they have a duty to try to prevent that. So where was the recess monitor on the day that Flick uh, affixed his tongue? They should have noticed when kids were gathering around the flagpole and done something about it. And you might think, well, why would we talk about these legal issues? No kid would ever actually affix their tongue to a platform. <laughs> Except it happens every winter with kids across the country uh, giving it a try to try to imitate the movie. And even this year, a college freshman at Baylor University got her uh, tongue stuck to a pole and uh, posted it on social media. So it happens. Um <laughs> Illinois, Georgia, I mean, it comes up every year. And now I think kids actually like to, you know, get their name in the paper. And there's your, uh, next up is the college student. Lovely. Kids, don't try this. Please, do not try this. Let's turn to the leg lamp. Ralphie's dad wins a contest, and the prize is this garish uh, lamp depicting a leg with a fishnet stocking. Um, he displays it proudly in his front room, his front window of his home in Indiana in the 1940s. Um, could he be arrested for displaying obscene material to children who happen to be walking by his house? Well, that begs the question, what is obscene? Who decides what's obscene and by what standards? The Supreme Court answered that question in a seminal case called Miller v. California, 1973, and they applied a test, so courts get to decide what's obscene. Um, The first part of the test is what would an average person applying contemporary community standards uh, find? Would they find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest? So this is the test that's applied. Two important parts of that test. One is contemporary. So what is obscene actually does change over time. What might have been obscene in the 1940s is maybe not obscene in 2021. The other important part of the test is it applies community standards. So it's not a national standard, according to the Supreme Court, it is a local standard. So for those of you who may have um, attended the Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco, (laughs) or the naked bike ride in Oregon, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, your idea of what's obscene might be different than somebody uh, sitting in Indiana. Uh, Putting my judge hat on, um, applying the um, Miller standard to the leg lamp, I would note that both Ralphie and his father seemed pretty excited about the leg lamp, and the mother, um, the wise mother in the case, um, was very hesitant to display it uh, for the neighborhood to see. At the same time, the Supreme Court asks us to also look at the artistic value of a work, and you can't deny the artistic value <laughs> of the leg lamp here. So I would, I would find that the leg lamp is not obscene, and he may freely display it uh, in front of his home, even in 1940s Indiana. And finally, the Red Ryder BB gun. (laughs) Ralphie asks for the BB gun 28 times in the movie. Every three minutes and 20 seconds in the movie, he's asking for the Red Ryder BB gun. Um, If you, as a parent, which they did in the movie, buy him the BB gun, and he actually ends up shooting his eye out, or shooting the eye out of another kid, can you go to jail as the parent? Well, many states have something called child uh, access prevention laws, or CAP laws, that make it um, illegal to negligently store your firearms in your home. So if you are providing your kids with access to guns, and if, A, if you provide them access, you're liable, but B, if they actually take the gun somewhere and either brandish it or bring it to school, you are held criminally liable as a parent. But that begs the question, is a BB gun actually a firearm? Depends on what state you live in. And a couple of states, including New Jersey and Rhode Island, they treat BB guns like firearms. In other states, if it's a high-powered BB gun, it's treated like a firearm. But in most states, it's regulated separately. And, um, but if you, uh, if if, uh, someone under 18 possesses it, that does require parental consent. And if you do end up shooting someone's eye out with a BB gun, you might be charged with assault, or battery, or assault with a deadly weapon. So keep that in mind. Public service announcement time. Accidental shootings have actually gone up quite a bit during the pandemic, so safely store your weapons. Unless it's a lightsaber, you can play with those anytime.
2: <laughs> so I, I chose to, a topic that is partly law and partly anthropology, because I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm horrified about what has happened to the elves over the period of time from Middle-earth to now. Because I'm one of those that believes that Middle-earth was in our past. I know that there are different theories. We're not going to debate that now. But I, you know, when I watched Lord of the Rings, I, I wanted to be an elf. I wanted to be Legolas. I wanted to be hanging around with Leve Tyler. I mean, really? Um, and so over these centuries or millennia from Middle-earth to now, we now see what has happened to this beautiful magical culture. They've become workshop ants for Santa. And you know, Santa's village disturbs me. We think of we think of Santa as this genial guy who gives presents to kids. Is he still here? Where are you, Santa? There he is. Alright. Alright, there he is. We think of him as this genial old guy that that gives gifts to young children. But of course, where do these gifts come from? They come on the backs of what has happened to the elves. (laughs) Take a look at Santa's Village. Now there's nothing wrong with company towns. Company towns are not illegal per se. But you have to look at what happens in the company towns in order to decide whether or not the operation violates the rights of the workers. In the typical company town, workers get their housing from their employer. Sometimes they have to buy their clothes from the employer. The only place to buy food and uh, essential items is in the company's store. You buy your heat and your electricity uh, from the town or from the, the company town. And in the end, you end up owing money rather than making money so you can never leave. Santa's Village It's in the North Pole, doesn't have regular air service except the sleigh, and I'm not sure that it is available to the elves generally. But I'm more concerned about the working conditions, honestly, than I am about whether or not it's a company town. You know, we have heard talk from various elves who may get word out to the world that the working conditions in Santa's Village are not ideal, especially now, during the holiday season. Things are very difficult. And the question is, you know, is Santa paying them properly under the FLSA? Is he paying them the minimum wage? There's some question. Is he giving them their break time, their meal time? Are they earning time off? We don't know the answers to these questions. What about the workshop itself? Are they getting overtime? Are they getting the double overtime for holiday work? there's some question as to whether that's true and you know if you're an individual aggrieved employee it's really difficult to sue on your own for like a wage an hour violation whether it's federal or California state. You want to bond or you, you want to represent other people so you are as a group suing the employer for, uh, for violation and the vehicle for that primarily in federal law is the class action actually exists on the state law as well Rule 23 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. So you have to have numerosity. There's probably enough L's. You have to have typicality, that the claims of each member of the class are close to or, or identical. And you have to have commonality, that is, they all have the same interest. And the other thing you need in order to sustain a class action under federal and state law is a representative plaintiff, at least one. Someone who is willing to stand up for the class and suffer the slings and arrows of Santa. And so it's very hard to find someone willing to stand up for that, but I did have an idea, and I thought it might be this guy.
3: California Penal Code, section 602.5, there are two different um, trespassing issues. The first one um, is when uh, basically says that any person who enters a home or residence of someone without their consent is guilty of a misdemeanor. And then under the second section B, if you do that, if you enter the person's home or dwelling or residence, um, while they're there, that's actually aggravated trespassing. Um, and that can come with a, a punishment of up to a year in jail and a $1,000 fine. So the issue becomes, is there consent? So, as we know, well, is was Santa invited to enter the residence? Well, was there a letter from an occupant <laughs> <laughs> to Santa asking to bring Christmas gifts? Did an occupant ask a mall Santa to bring them something? Did an occupant leave out milk and cookies? Were the stockings hung by the chimney with care it was so there. If any of these are done, I would say there was an invitation for Santa to come. so there would be con- uh, there would be consent, and Santa would not be trespassing. But if there was no consent. Is there a conspiracy with Elf on the <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> under the California Penal Code, conspiracy is when two or more persons uh, conspire to commit a crime. And for there to be a conspiracy, you, to convict for a conspiracy, you actually have to have what's called an overt act. So they have to do something um some act that is um, enough to get them to on their way to commit the crime so for elf, those of you who aren't familiar with elf on a shelf elf on a shelf is a scout or a spy sent by santa to watch children and he reports back to the north pole every night uh to tell santa whether or not the child has been naughty or nice so are elf on a Sh- is elf on a shelf uh, conspiring to commit a crime? Well, it depends, again, on whether or not Santa uh, has consent to be in the house. And is there an overt act? Well, I would argue, if we go to the next slide oh, sorry. uh Reporting back to the North Pole, nightly, could be an overt act because that is what is key to whether or not Santa visits your house on Christmas Eve. So, lingering questions, though. Is the elf on a shelf a stalker? I don't know. We'll leave that for the next day. Beckerman,
0: let's talk about the great injustice that Rudolph has suffered.
4: I would like to think that a lot of us ended up in law school because of watching Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and recognizing the great injustices present in this movie. First as we know, Santa Claus refused to hire Rudolph at, on his team because of the red nose. Can Rudolph sue Santa for either nasal discrimination or hostile work environment? <laughs> because all the other reindeer laughed at him and called him names at you know Santa's lead. Well, probably not. Um, to sue for discrimination, you need to be a member of a protected class, as the law defines a protected class. So based on your gender, your nationality, sexual orientation, um, that type of thing. And a a physical characteristic such as your bright red nose is really more like hair color or eye color, which the law uh, does not necessarily prevent um, from discrimination for um, obtaining employment. However, a better legal, legal theory for Rudolph may be to sue Santa under the Uh, disability discrimination laws, including the Americans with Disabilities Act or the state equivalent. Um, According to the ADA, you can sue your employer or prospective employer for refusing to hire you because of your disability. And a disability is defined as a physical impairment that substantially limits uh, your daily life activities. So the record here does not necessarily support that Rudolph's red nose limits his life activities. There's no evidence that he can't use it to smell things. And he can obviously still fly. So that way he would run into a barrier there with his ADA legal theory. However, the ADA also protects you from what an employer perceives to be a disability. So if Santa perceives that Rudolph is disabled and doesn't hire Rudolph because of that, he may be liable under the ADA. However, as we know, far from being a disability, that red nose is actually one of Rudolph's superpowers. So I I look to the movie as embracing the fact that what makes us different is what makes us special. So go Rudolph. I always got a little teary when I saw the Island of Misfit Toys. But now that I watch as a judge, I think, well, what are the tax consequences (laughs) of receiving a misfit toy from Santa? So the Island of Misfit Toys, as you know, inhabits broken or unusual toys, such as a boat that doesn't float, a train with square wheels, a squirt gun that shoots jelly, and frankly, a doll that nobody really knows what's wrong with the doll. The doll looks pretty normal. Um, but on the Christmas Eve in question, Santa uh, drops these beautiful misfit toys from the sky and they land, up it, they land in homes across San Diego to uh, good girls and boys. But the next morning, the parents wake up and they're like, crap, my kid got a misfit toy. What am I gonna do? Can I donate it to Goodwill and take a tax deduction? And this is your public service announcement as we enter the holiday season. Can you take a tax deduction if you donate a broken or um, uh, valueless toy to Goodwill or another charity? No, stop doing it. (laughs) And I'm looking at my husband when I say that. We'll have a Goodwill bag with like half a puzzle and six Legos and a couple hungry hippo marbles. And he'll write down like 14 small toys. <laughs> no, you can't do that. The IRS regulations, you have to, the toy has to be in good condition and you can only write it off for the, uh, the value of the toy. So, the, so that is um, your PSA for this holiday season. If you donate to, to toys, make sure they're good, you know, lightly used toys. Don't donate your broken, uh, misfit toys. Finally, let's talk about Hermie. <laughs> the Trafficking Victims Protection Act of 2000 <laughs> defines labor trafficking as the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining of a person for labor or services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of subject, subjection to involuntary servitude. As we know, both Santa and the lead elf guy coerced poor Hermie to make toys for children when he would much rather be brushing your teeth. It is a classic case of labor trafficking. Is anybody here a law professor? Oh my gosh, we have one law professor. This should be taught in every law school. (laughs) It's the classic case of labor trafficking with Hermie the elf. Is Santa also liable for child labor trafficking? Well, i have no idea how old Hermie is who thinks hermy is a minor raise your hand there's really no way to know okay so maybe santa's also liable for child labor trafficking um but
5: clearly clearly guilty this, is, of... this has been a rough session for santa i gotta say <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry man you
4: might want to sneak out the back before he gets it gets caught and taken away those are the legal lessons from rudolph the red-nosed reindeer all right let me add, um, Paul Soles passed away a few months ago and he was the voice of Hermie the Elf and also the voice of the amazing Spider Man in the nineteen sixties animated series. So I just wanted to pause, recognize him, may he rest in peace and may we continue to celebrate his legacy.
2: So this topic is very near and dear to my heart. I spent my entire childhood on the naughty list. I don't know about the rest of you, but I thought it was unfair. I didn't think I should have been on the list. And as I grew up, it did change me. It was something I cared about deeply in terms of other children who were placed on the naughty list without warrant. And I thought to myself, when I become a lawyer, I want to do something about it. And now that I'm a judge, I'd like to have the opportunity to do something about it. You all know that the naughty list is enforced by the TSA, which is the Santa agency. (laughs) And the question is how does one get on the list? What are the criteria? Who decides? I mean, we understand there might be elf on the shelf, but that's not a decision maker. In the end, it has to be the agency, TSA, that perhaps makes a recommendation to its administrator, Santa, <laughs> to decide whether or not some poor child is placed on the naughty list. But I'm concerned, apart from elf on the shelf, whether there are violations of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. I think Santa is a state actor. Why so? Christmas is a holiday, enforced by federal and state governments. So as a consequence, is not Santa tantamount to a state actor? And if he is a state actor, he has to abide by the Fourth Amendment. That is no unreasonable search and seizure. If he sees you when you're sleeping, and knows when you're awake, he is conducting surveillance. (laughs) Without a warrant or consent, that surveillance is illegal. Evidence obtained from the illegal surveillance cannot be used. And if Santa is an actor, putting you on the naughty list is an action (laughs) that may be subject to redress. And if not that, Santa may be subject to a civil rights lawsuit (laughs) for violation of the Fourth Amendment in seeing you when you're sleeping and knowing when you're awake. What can you do about it as an individual? Can you sue? Well, the 14th Amendment to the US Constitution provides due process regarding any deprivation of life or liberty. And in order to sue for having put on the naughty list, it's actually a tough road. You'd think it would be enough to get the cold. No, it's not enough. It requires that you be stigmatized for being on the naughty list, and that would only happen if somebody saw that you got cold. Maybe you even told people, which kind of eliminates the stigma if you circulate it yourself. But if people find out that you are on the naughty list, that's not enough. That's simply your reputation that has been damaged. It may be enough for someone to swipe white right or left, whichever way you go on those, <laughs> on those forms, on those uh, services, but you need something more than reputational damage. If someone finds out that you are on the naughty list, and as a consequence you don't get into the school you want, your employer fires you. You know, if you have one of the you know 16-year-old jobs, uh, jobs that are given to 16-year-olds, now you have stigma plus. And Stigma Plus does provide the opportunity for you to sue Santa and try and find out why you're on the list and challenge your inclusion on the list. <laughs> the other way to do it is from the Administrative Procedures Act. You have to, you know, in order to, to for an agency like the Santa Agency to act, they have to follow regulations. They have to be uh, statutory and, statutorily enabled. They have to have rules that they follow. And if you are someone on the naughty list, you can try and challenge the procedures used under the APA to determine whether or not you should have been given notice that you're on the list and have a meaningful opportunity to refute the information underlying your inclusion on the list. So, you know, that is an opportunity that I think people don't don't appreciate. The APA really isn't used very much in this context, but I recommend it. Of course, Santa can say that he has acted completely lawfully under the APA. His decision is not arbitrary and capricious. The inclusion on the list was because he he checked the it twice and then acted on it, as he said himself in Santa Claus is Coming to Town.
1: Well, let's go back.
0: there's a Christmas Carol and when you think about all the legal issues in a Christmas Carol Bob Cratchit was forced to work in a cold environment. That is a dangerous workplace under federal law when it comes to OSHA. So if Cratchit was to file a OSHA complaint Here's how it could look. <laughs> <laughs> He's forced to work in the sill behind a tank with only a single coal for a fire. Mr. Scrooge keeps the coal box in his office and refuses to provide coal for the fire. That's not a sweatshop, it's an icebox. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not something the law would tolerate, and it's why you get visited by three ghosts. Now, Church Owens, let's talk about what every law student addressed this
5: time of year. Yeah, so for those of you who went to law school, uh, you probably didn't remember December of your first year as a, the most wonderful time of the year. Because what happened, right? What happened in December of your first year? Yeah. Finals. <laughs> so, in that very joyous spirit, you guys didn't know this. You guys have a final exam right now. <laughs> so here is the question. Now, the question is, what is the most important Star Wars franchise since A New Hope? Now, remember law school exams. You can't just simply blurt out the answer. You've got to show how you get there, right? You can't just say, plain enough is liable. You're not going to get a good grade on your law school exam. You've got to work through the question. Sometimes you're going to say, this is in favor. This is not in favor. We're going to work through it. So, some of you might be saying, well, obviously Empire Strikes Back. Okay, wrong. Now, I happen to think Empire Strikes Back personally is my favorite thing of the whole Star Wars franchise, okay? But once Star Wars came out, you know, those next two were kind of coming. We all kind of knew that. So if you were to say in your exam, you want to identify that issue spotter, identify these, but then explain why they are not the most important part of the franchise though. I think they're very, very good. Now, when you're going through exam, anything with this guy, all right, (laughs) that you're going to get a very bad grade. Now, why George Lucas keeps saying this is the greatest character he ever wrote for this. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, but no, that is, I can tell you as a judge, that is, that is the absolute wrong answer. You will not get a passing grade. Okay. So you might be thinking, hey, so what's left, right? Well, anything with these guys in it, Aww. also, and I'm sorry, people <laughs> love the porn. Um, not sure what was going on with those crystal foxes in that one movie. Not really sure what the what they were. BB8, yeah, he's kind of cool, he kind of zips around. But honestly, in terms of the importance, I mean I to me, they just don't really advance the ball those those last three movies. So, where are we left? Now you might be saying the easy answer, is obviously this one, right? (laughs) Certainly if the question was what's the most valuable part of the franchise, (laughs) no doubt about it. This, I mean, Disney plus, I mean, think how prevalent that is. This alone I would have to think is the biggest reason why Disney plus is so big, but it's not the right answer. So before we go to the next slide, does anyone want to take a guess as to what is the most important? Yes. Yes, right here. Say it again. Oh, oh, and I'm thinking more of like a franchise, not a character. But no, but but, uh, great character. Yeah, uh, right here in front. Rogue One. Rogue One. It's my favorite. Favorite, but not the most important. Yes. Another very good bridge, but I would say no. Yes. Another great bridge, right, when there wasn't a lot of great stuff going on. But no. Yes. Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford, like R2, did a great job. But no.
1: Star Wars Holiday Special. How did he get that?
5: All right, now. Who? Who actually, and I will admit, I was one of them. Who actually watched this one in air? Okay, one, that means we're old. But two, I loved it when I was seven years old watching it. If you go back and try to watch this thing, it is, it is so awful. I mean, it's so bad. Um, look, it's on YouTube. Um, you know, Disney for, and Lucas for years has tried to make it go away. Now, they seem to be warming up a little bit to it, honestly. Um, but for years, I would before YouTube, I would tell friends that this existed. And they said, no, there's no way it existed. And I said, oh, it did. And like, you met Chewbacca's family. And there's like, itchy. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Nothing could be that bad. It is really that bad. Um, and actually, uh, someone mentioned Harrison Ford. Um, You know, he kind of mails it in in that episode. A lot of them, the acting is probably Harrison Ford's worst acting ever is in that. But, if we go back, go ahead, uh, Josh and Ford here. It had this. There's this really weird cartoon during it called The Faithful Wookiee. And it actually has the voices of Harrison Ford and uh, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher. It actually has them voices. Now, I will say the quality of the animation makes... Frosty the Snowman looked like anime. Um, But it has this cartoon and it actually introduced us to Boba Fett. It's the first time he ever appeared is in this cartoon. And this cartoon is available on Disney Plus. It is not the highest quality cartoon, as you can tell right there, but that's where we first saw Boba Fett. And if we go to the next slide, for those of you who remember back then, this is the brilliance of Lucas. If you bought four Star Wars figures and mailed in the proofs of purchases, you would get a Boba Fett action figure. Now, you all heard about the one that launches the missiles and people died. That one was, re- I mean, was never really part of the mailing process. The ones you saw as kids, I can see a number of people nodding in the audience. This was the one when they got rid of that missile launching one. This was the one. And so I would say, if you, if you go through it, the Mandalorian is the most valuable franchise. What led to it? Now you could say Empire Strikes Back. We'll put that aside for a second. What led to it? I would say was the holiday special because of the show The Faithful Wookiee. So if you have Disney Plus, check out The Faithful Wookiee. It's about nine minutes long. Not very good, but and Boba Fett has a weird voice in that one too. So anyway, it's worth checking out. So anyway, that's the answer to the exam. So good job back there. Good job back there.
2: So if they have standing, is there any way that someone suing on their behalf has to present standing that they can adequately or have the ability to represent that particular plaintiff in this
5: case? And the answer to that is yes. That's actually been an issue in both cases, in the whale case and in the monkey case. I think PETA was involved in the monkey case. And I think in that case they actually said PETA was not close enough, did not satisfy the organizational standing on behalf of the monkey.
2: So how do they establish organization?
5: It, so there are a number of factors in environmental cases to show, and I'm not remembering that off the top of my head, but that's a big battle, right? Because you'll have uh, a government plan to chop down trees, and someone comes forward and says, I represent the trees. And they say, well, not everyone can represent the trees, so what is your tie? So what, what groups will do is they'll say, look, we routinely hold meetings in this forest. We, uh, we walk through the forest all the time. And they'll do things to establish that they have some kind of tie to this physical area. So if, if someone's never been there, much harder. But if it's someone who r- routinely enjoys it, uh, that makes a stronger case. And there are lots of cases in environmental settings where the fight in the case is who can represent the environment in a sense. What if
2: I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay? <laughs> right. That can happen.
5: Well, you know, in that case, I would say potentially Karen or her family, uh, you know, maybe Karen through a, the traumatic act of Professor Hinkle locking. I mean, it's pretty awful what happens to Frosty. I mean, he locks him in a hot box and melts the guy. So, in that situation, you could say that the kids who are all excited about Frosty, I think maybe could bring a suit on his behalf. I don't think Frosty's married. Otherwise, there could be a, a spouse who could do it. But I think in that situation, you could. Can... What's that? Oh, I was—I was referring to the original one. Apparently, in the uh, expanded universe of Frosty, uh, he, has, he has a wife named Crystal. Uh oh. So well, with ITAR violations they often have to be willful, but right? You have to know what you're doing is illegal. And if everyone's always singing his praise, then he might say, Look, I didn't I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. I thought it was good. You know, the President of the United States says I'm a great guy. So I think he may have a an intent defense to that.
0: Wow. Well done. Um-
3: Would she have been grandfathered in if she's a so that's actually a good, really a, a good point. Um, <laughs> that I'd actually have to look and see if there was a, a statute in there, but whether or not, well, let's find it. Let's see, if the Endangered Species Act I think was passed in the '80s. i want to say? '70s. 70s. Oh, my sister who works with endangered species knows. '73. <laughs> 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 um, but. Um, uh, so you have to have a specific um, clause in the statute that would allow people to, who already possess them, to um, continue to keep them, yes. Okay. Wow, okay.
0: <clears throat> you the, uh, next to the gentleman in the yellow shirt. That's you. Yes? Yep. Yes, okay, yes, fine. Um, so is Frosty actually alive though? because he doesn't have a and with monkeys, they have to eat Frosty does have to eat heart. He gets up to
1: That's sort of like a kind
5: of thing. Or right, so the question is, right, is he is he a, 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 be, a believing being? Well, he, as he says, he can count, he can sweep. Uh, and he's he run, or something like that. I yeah, I, I mean, Fro- Fro- Frosty does seem to have some kind of consciousness because when he gets melted and then he comes back, he remembers things somehow. So there's something... There's something going on there with Frosty. I'm not entirely sure how that works with Frosty, but yeah, I, I think I think Frosty I think Frosty qualifies.
0: Yes, sir. Okay.
5: So it has to be, you, you, you can accept gifts, but if they're intended to influence an official action. So the question is that if you work for the government and you're going to change something on behalf of Santa, maybe so. they actually, it's actually a funny question because there have been a number of Supreme Court cases on what is a bribe. And what we all might think is a bribe, according to the Supreme Court, is not. Uh, I think when Mitch and I were in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we would have sworn those were bribes. And the Supreme Court has said that they're not. So.
3: What? <laughs>
0: and make those memories out. So with that, thank you